Well, we continue our series in the book of Acts this morning. If you were here, you'll have heard Colin preaching on the preaching a sermon on a sermon, the great sermon of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. We're going to continue from there, but we need the help of the Holy Spirit who has poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost if we're to understand God's word and be enabled to apply it in our lives. So let's just pray first of all before we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've poured out your spirit upon all flesh. We live in those last days, the final decisive days of human history that began on the day of Pentecost, following the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and will continue until the return of Jesus from heaven in power and great glory. So in these days of opportunity, these days of grace, we pray you'll help us as we understand your word and to put it into practice and to be the kind of church that's described in those pages for the same spirit is still at work today among your people. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The picture on the cover of the book, a plane plunging towards the ground, reveals the title of the book. It's called Pulling Out of the Nosedive. Written by Peter Braley, who's the director, or was, he's recently retired, of the Christian Research Association. And the book really is the report of the census taken in May 2005 of English churches. And while it reveals that the dramatic decline in church attendance over the past decades has slowed somewhat, largely due to the immigrant population coming into Britain, particularly in large churches in London, the trend is still downwards. And the question is, in Peter's own words, and I was with him in a seminar uh, just before it was published, whether the plane will pull out of the nosedive before it hits the ground. Now, the figures in Scotland are slightly higher, but the trend is still the same as it is for churches throughout the Western world. So the big issue that almost every church in the West, in the United Kingdom faces, is how can we arrest the decline? Now this is not the issue in the non-Western world, where the church in many places is growing very rapidly indeed. And it was certainly not the issue for the church that was born on the day of Pentecost. As we saw this morning in our series in the book of Acts, which we've called appropriately The Spreading Flame, 3,000 people responded in repentance and faith in Jesus following Peter's sermon, and they were added to the 120 believers. Now, I did a bit of mathematics, not my strongest subject. That is a growth of 2,600%. Charlotte Chapel has a membership, a formal membership, of 650. That's like us acquiring, at the end of today, 16,900 new members in one day. Now, when that kind of thing happens, or anything remotely approaching it, the issue is not how to arrest the decline. The issue is how to cope with the growth. What would we do if we were faced with such a situation? And now in the few churches in the West that are facing that problem, the discussion centers around questions like, should we build a new building that's much bigger? 
Or should we go to two services to allow for the growth? Or the latest thing in America is, uh, you have satellite congregations. Literally, you meet in one place like this, and you show the sermon on satellite pictures in different locations around the city. Questions like, how do we restructure? How do we reorganize the congregation to meet the needs of the new members? Now, such discussions are, of course, valid and even necessary, but there are other more important fundamental foundations that need to be laid before those kind of questions are asked and certainly answered. And in his description of the church that was born on the day of Pentecost, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, records what we could call priorities of a growing church. Uh, If you remember, following his response, this is Acts 2.41, those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. And let's read on about what happened to these new Christians in this growing, this explosive growth situation. We'll really help to have a Bible. Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. It's page 1094. We're going to be focusing simply this evening on these six verses. Uh, One of the things I was telling people, if you're a senior pastor, is that you give your associates 41 verses to preach on, and the senior pastor gets only six to preach on. Won't promise it'll be any shorter, but never mind. So let's read uh, Acts 2. It's very hot in here. Let's read Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, these remarkable words. They, that is the new Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, notice as we begin the opening verb there. It says, they devoted themselves to certain things. The word translated devoted literally means to be strong towards something, to make it an emphasis to be steadfastly committed to something. So what was it they were devoted to? What was it that they were specially committed to of greatest importance? Uh, The rest of the verse gives us the answer. Uh, And you'll find many commentaries on the book of Acts that give basically the same answer. I've just borrowed one for convenience. Three priorities in this verse, verse 42, to which the believers devoted themselves. First of all, the apostles' teaching. The first thing is, they were a learning church. Secondly, the fellowship, they were a loving church. Thirdly, the breaking of bread into prayer, they were a worshipping church. And then what follows in the remaining verses is a description of how these priorities are worked out in practice in the life of this church in Jerusalem, verses 43 to 46. So that's where we're going this evening, all right? So stay with me. As we look at this together, we're going to look in more detail at the priorities more briefly because they're foundational and then more briefly at what, how they're seen in practice. So here's the first thing that we notice. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
This church was committed to teaching, but more than that, to learning. It was a learning church. I wonder, interesting, some of you have visitors here, maybe you've moved to Edinburgh, and as is right, if you're a Christian, you look around and think, I need to join the church, I'll go and visit a few churches. And uh, I wonder if you've got a sort of mental checklist in your head of saying, this is what I'm looking for in the church I want to join. What would your list be? What would your priorities be? Uh, I, I think, and I don't think this is just nostalgia, I think there has been a change in my lifetime, which is considerable, of course. But um, When I was growing up, the main thing that determined what kind of church you joined was what they believed in. In fact, in many churches, as you came in the foyer, you could see printed, uh, usually in a framed uh, picture on the wall as you came in what was called a doctrinal statement a statement of belief and as you came in you read it and thought "Mm, that's what they stand for in this church Uh, today I don't think that's the priority whether it's displayed or not for many Christians today I would suspect and you can correct me at the door as people do um, but but I, I suspect the priority for most people today that determines what kind of church you join is the style of the service and especially the kind of music in the church services. Is it traditional, contemporary or blended? Is it voice only, just psalms, organ with mostly hymns, an orchestra or a band with modern music? Now, such things are again not unimportant. We all have our own preferences. But let me simply say that music should never be a priority for a church or Christian for one good reason. It's not the priority of the churches in the New Testament. In fact, if you've got a concordance when you get home, I would encourage you to look up and you may be surprised to see how little specific mention there is in the whole of the New Testament about music and singing. I think the other Christians, of course, had music and they did sing. But it was not a priority. No, the priority of the New Testament churches was what they believed. And so the first thing Luke mentions is He says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, The older versions of the Bible, the King James Version, translates it, they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. Now, of course, it was not their doctrine, in the sense they invented it, as some critics claim. It was the apostles' teaching because it was taught to the apostles by Jesus. For example, the Sermon on the Mount is a classic example. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 Uh, tells us what Jesus taught his followers about the kingdom. The focus of Jesus, he spent three years in his public ministry on earth, and while quite a lot of time was spent with the crowds, his priority, I think you can argue very convincingly, was actually with the twelve men he chose as his apostles. What did he do with them? He was teaching them, training them, for the task to which he commissioned them before he returned to heaven. And so the apostles' teaching was taught by Jesus to the apostles and then taught by the apostles to new believers, to new disciples. So uh, look at Matthew 28, the end of what's called the Great Commission. This is the last commission of Jesus before he ascended to heaven. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. The disciple is a learner. Greek word methetes, which we get maths. Uh, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the initiation we saw this morning. And 
teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And as we saw in the first in our series in Acts, that teaching program was completed by Jesus in that 40-day window between his resurrection and his ascension as he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God, Acts 1, verse 3. And so now, after Pentecost, the apostles begin to carry out their commission. Their priority is to teach these new baby Christians all that Jesus had taught them. And they weren't doing it alone. The Holy Spirit had been given to enable them to do this. This is what Jesus promised in John 14, 26. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Acts, John Stock comments, The very first evidence Luke mentions of the Spirit's presence in the church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles Jesus had appointed, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. Now, we do not believe in apostolic succession in the sense that there are people who are successors of the original apostles. Their role was unique, for you only lay foundations once. Their unique role was attested uniquely, like the teaching ministry of Jesus, by many wonders and miraculous signs, which, notice Luke says specifically, were done by the apostles, verse 43. However, we do believe in apostolic succession in the form of the teaching of the apostles, which has been handed down from generation to generation accurately. It's the responsibility of any local church, an authentic local New Testament church, to teach the truth and to refute any teaching which adds or takes away from it. If you don't do this, any growth will not last because it has no foundations to build upon. It has no real substance. Philip Riken American pastor who we, whose commentary on Jeremiah we benefited from last year has written a book on the church entitled City on a Hill. Uh, it's subtitled Reclaiming the Biblical Pattern for the Church in the 21st Century. And this is what he says. In the 21st century we cannot go to the temple and hear the apostles in person. There is a way to devote ourselves to their teaching however and that is by studying the Bible. points out that the apostles based their teaching on the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, that pointed to Christ. What they taught about Jesus was the story of Christ, his teaching, his life, his ministry, which we find in the four Gospels. And the content of their teaching is found in the rest of the New Testament, in the Epistles and the Book of Acts. So Rackin concludes, the teaching of the Apostles thus spans the Scriptures, which means that anyone devoted to their teaching that is the whole Bible. Now, a lot of you probably, particularly those who are older of my vintage, will be nodding your heads and saying, yeah, we agree that. You need to be in a church that's a good teaching church. You need to be a well-taught Christian. I would simply say to you, and there isn't a word for it, but I would say it is not enough to be a well-taught Christian. You need to be a well-learned Christian. You can listen to sermons in Charlotte Chapel 
now on the internet and all sorts of ways, so they're coming out of your ears. Teaching is one thing, learning something else. What's the difference? Teaching is like preparing a meal. Learning is eating it. Unless we put God's word into practice as we hear it, it is a waste of time. And we can fool ourselves in thinking, oh, I'm very well taught. I know all the facts. Not my orange juice off now, not my orange juice, my water off. In fact, I'll have a drink of it while I'm doing that. Uh, You see, a good illustration really, isn't it? You can have the truth in yes. Drinking it means taking it in, benefiting from it. That wasn't planned, by the way. So, let's move on. First priority of this growing church is they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. They were a learning church. Secondly, notice it was a loving church. It's no accident that what follows teaching, what is built on the foundation, is then the relationship between those who are part of the building, the living building, the church of Christ, the stones as it were. And such a relationship is more than just friendship. Because it's based on truth. And Luke uses a special word to describe uh, this kind of relationship when he tells us the believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching and secondly, to the fellowship. I remember when I was growing up in Derbyshire, we had some very interesting preachers. Uh, I remember a man coming once to our church. Uh, He hadn't got much education, but he loved the Lord and he said, fellowship means lots of fellows in the same ship. Well, um, not exactly what the word means, but there is a sense. <laughs> and then he developed the theme, you know, about all being in the boat, rowing together, and, not, you know, and storms of life, and all that kind of thing. But the, the actual word fellowship, koinonia, it's a Greek word, it means something shared in common. Something you share in common with other people. So what is it that the sh- these Christians share in common? Well, the opening words of the first letter that the Apostle John wrote... Uh, give us the answer as the basis for Christian fellowship. Shared relationships with fellow Christians. This is what he says. We, that is John and the other apostles, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Can you see what he's saying? We proclaim to you the message of Jesus. Through that message of Jesus, you have fellowship vertically with God. You're brought into a new relationship with God made real by the Holy Spirit. And you share fellowship horizontally with everyone else who's embraced the same message with as apostles and everybody else. We all belong to the same family. So on the day of Pentecost, the 120 suddenly found 3,000 new family members who all had the same experience, who all shared the same fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, with God the Father, through the Holy Spirit. It's clear that they put this into practice, in both large and small groups as they met together. Verse 46 tells us how they worked it out. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They met in large groups in the temple courts, surrounding the temple. There was space for thousands of people. You could meet in public like that, not the inner temple, of course. And they also met together in homes. And if fellowship is to be meaningful in terms of relationships, it needs not only to include bigger groups like we have here this evening, you need to be part of smaller groups where you're 
accountable to people, where you can share with people, where you can belong. And that's why in this church we encourage everyone who's committed to Charlotte Chapel to belong to a small group. We call them fellowship groups. Uh, They meet this week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. If you're not part of one of these groups, you don't have to be a formal member. You can just fill in the form and we'll link you with one near where you live. And it's great to have these groups together. They they cover a whole cross-section of people. Uh, My wife and I belong to one group that meets in Morningside and there are folk like us of older vintage. There are uh, three students, uh, some of them are here this evening. Uh, There are people who've just come to faith more recently through Christianity Explored. There are other... Christians who have been around for a long time, and it's just great. We just meet together, uh, and uh, David and Susan up there, and David teaches at New College, keeps us straight. Um, you know, we, we, we belong to, we, we, we're all different experiences, yet we share together in fellowship. And, and it's great to develop those kind of relationships, and we need that. Uh, so we see that the Christians in the other church are committed to one another. They're devoted to the fellowship. They're devoted to one another. They're committed to one another. You see, it's not real fellowship. Well, it is, but only on a very superficial level. If all fellowship in Charlotte Chapel means to you is shaking hands with someone and maybe having a cup of coffee once a week after church on a Sunday. Something greater than that. It must be something more intimate and deeper than that. And it's made real by the Holy Spirit, which is why we talk about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, we have this relationship with others that binds us together. It's a very strange thing, you know. You can, if you've been around as a Christian anywhere, you you can go almost anywhere in the world and you can meet some other Christians from a totally different culture and background. See, Josh nodding his head there is out in the Philippines. You you just meet a few Christians and immediately you feel an affinity with them, don't you? You you feel a, a sense of unity. We belong to the same family. Very different culturally, linguistically. Background, education, but there's something about it that binds us together. It's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, while this, this is a felt experience, and, and as Rodney said, I've already got this business about, you know, we, don't, we frown on people raising their hands. You can you worship God however you feel is appropriate. <laughs> but uh, Rodney's just trying to loosen stuff of that, I think. But um, there should be an emotional experience of joy in that. But it's more than that. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a loving action. And this fellowship among these Christians was not uh, just fellowship that's, if you like, a spiritual fellowship, a relationship, but it also meant shared possessions with fellow Christians. Uh, Luke tells us, uh, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Now, there are some people who say this is early communism. But it's not. There are no commissars or edicts to make sure you do it. It's purely voluntary. How do we know that? Well, because they continued to meet in their homes. Some of them still had homes. Some of them sold their possessions. When they saw people had need, they gave sacrificially, willingly, gladly. And they continued to do so in the days following Pentecost. Luke, uh, Acts 4 verse 32 All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Someone has said that there are only three attitudes a person can take towards material possessions. The thief says, what is yours is mine, I'll take it. The selfish person says, what is mine is mine, I'll keep it. But the Christian says, or should say, what is mine is God's, 
and so I'll share it. So especially, it's a, it's a challenge, isn't it? You switch on the television the last three weeks, everybody's telling us we're living in this terrible financial crisis in the UK. What is our attitude at times like this? Do we tighten our belts and say, well, I better cut back on my giving? Or maybe you don't give very much anyway to the Lord's work. I don't give to other people. We may find increasingly in this economic climate that more and more people are in need. Some people actually believe that the, the early Christians in Jerusalem gave so sacrificially that when a great famine arose at 15, 20 years later, they were in desperate need. Uh, and if you know the New Testament, the Apostle Paul organized a collection among the churches he'd planted to send money back to Jerusalem to the mother church, as it were. It's very interesting what he wrote to the church in Corinth, in Greece, 2 Corinthians 8. He said, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty... Notice what he says, isn't it out of their extreme wealth? Out of their extreme poverty, welled up in rich generosity, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. The word highlighted, sharing there, is the same word, fellowship. This fellowship, this koinonia, sharing this service to the saints. In other words, they pleaded with Paul, look, please let us give something to help. And they were desperately poor. It's appropriate today, you'll see as you go out on the stairs, you'll know this if you've read the bulletin, we have an appeal for Christians in Zimbabwe through the Barnabas Fund. If you look at the news, it just is desperate, isn't it, what's happening in Zimbabwe with the economic conditions. And the Barnabas Fund are organizing giving through the local churches to people in need. Just amazing. If you look at the next slide, it tells you what, you, what we can give. Um, coming up. For £8.60, you give £8.60, you can feed a family of seven to ten people for a month. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, if you can afford more, I just worked it out in my good maths, if you gave £100, you could feed a family of seven to ten people for a whole year. Imagine that. That's good value, isn't it? You might say, well, I couldn't give that much. Okay, well, give £8.60. Feed somebody for a month. These are our brothers and sisters, and not just Christians, but other people they're reaching out to uh, to help them. If you're a taxpayer, you know, you can get the tax back as well and give that as well. You see, this is fellowship in action. You know what the Apostle John says? He says, this is the test of true fellowship. Listen to his words again in his first letter. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He didn't just sit up in heaven and say, I really love you. No, he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Sounds great, full stop. Yeah, I'll lay down my life for you, brother. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him. How can the love of God be in him? Just bogus. Dear friends, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Uh, one writer puts it this way. What we do or do not do with our material possessions is an indicator of the Spirit's presence or absence. 
Oh, we can talk about the Spirit working in us and through us. But what we do with our material possessions is the litmus test of whether the Spirit really is at work in us, creating a spirit of generosity. So that was the priority of this early church. They were a learning church and a loving church. Notice thirdly and finally, they were a worshipping church. As we've seen, these 3,120 people. Very interesting, by the way, you read through the book of Acts, how they kept count. Have you noticed that? But later on it says there were 5,000 of them. Someone was counting. They knew the record of who belonged. They entered into this new relationship made possible through Jesus, made real through the Holy Spirit. So we might say they were devoted to God. And that's highlighted by two phrases at the end of verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Uh, There were two linked priorities that should be priorities for us in Charlotte Chapel and for every Christian here. If our relationship with Jesus Christ is not only to be maintained but also to grow. Uh, Just look at them a little more closely with me. The phrase, the breaking of bread, is often used of sharing a meal together. And these early Christians did share meals together. In the East, as today, to share a meal with someone is a sign of acceptance, intimacy, fellowship in the true sense of the word. However, it's almost certainly that it means more here. For the literal translation is, the breaking of the bread. And almost certainly refers to the final meal that Jesus shared with his followers that we call by different names, communion, Eucharist, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, which Jesus gave to his followers and told them to continue to do in remembrance of him. One of the things he told the apostles, I'm doing this with you, keep doing this in remembrance of me. Interesting, why? Well, there are all sorts of reasons we could go into, uh, but the problem in any group, including churches, is you get a whole load of people join at the same time or become part of any group, And within a very short time, they start forming hierarchies and groups where one person's a leader, one person's less. We begin to look down on one another or elevate ourselves above other people. But when you come together for the breaking of the bread, it reminds us that we're all on the same level ground. We got in here purely by God's grace. And we remain in here purely by God's grace. That's why Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. They'd fallen out into rival factions and groups. They were having meals together, but those with lots of food were getting there and eating the food before the poor people. And he writes to them and says, remember what it means when you come together. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, 1 Corinthians 11:26. So if we're to keep short accounts with God, maintain true communion with one another, and it's the same word communion, that's fellowship again, we need to devote ourselves to the breaking of the bread. When we share together in this way, it's not just some kind of optional extra or some meaningless ritual. It reminds us of why we got here in the first place and why we remain here. And linked in with this, the breaking of the bread, the first Christians also devoted themselves to prayer. Again, this sounds like general personal prayer, which is important. But again, it probably means something more because it literally says the breaking of the bread and the prayers. They met together for specific occasions to pray. They continued with the Jewish habit of meeting together for prayer in the temple courts. In addition to that, they met together, as we've seen in smaller groups, 
uh, in homes. We'll see as we go through the book of Acts that when emergency situations arose, they met together to pray when they were persecuted. When Peter was put in prison, they met together to pray. Uh, Soon they begin to meet together, not on the Jewish Sabbath, but on Sunday, the day when Christ rose from the dead. You know when the early Christians met on Sundays? It wasn't 11 and 6.30. They had to work. They met before dawn, before they went to work, and when they came home in the evening, they met together, probably for a meal again, after dark, meeting together to share. And they did it because it was an expression of their love for God. Notice the character of their worship. There's a wonderful balance of reverence, everyone was filled with awe, verse 43, and joy. Glad and sincere hearts. So they're a worshipping church. We kind of limit the word worship to what we do when we come together on Sunday. But but worship is an expression of the worth of God in everything we do all of the time. Part of our life because we're devoted to God. We're a worshipping community. Whenever we come together, we share in this way. So I've almost finished. Time is going. And we're going to follow on from this by looking at practical outworking of it uh, in different ways within the church. These were these three priorities of a growing church. A learning church, a loving church, a worshipping church. Now many people add another feature. And they say, what you should add to this is a fourth feature of the church. Is it not true that they were also a witnessing church? After all, that's our verse for the year, Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. After all, wasn't that the commission that Jesus gave them? So why don't we read that they were devoted to witness? Or they were devoted to evangelism? Why not? Well, let me suggest a reason. And I wouldn't put my theological reputation on this, but I think it follows from what's here, what reputation I have. Uh, A church whose priorities are to be a learning church, a loving church, a worshipping church, is a witnessing church. You see, when this new community sprang up in Jerusalem, after the hubbub of the day of Pentecost had died down, devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, the residents of the city still continued to take notice of them. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. People looked at them and said, Wow! That's wonderful. Look at the way they love one another. Look how they committed they are to this Jesus Christ and what he taught. Wow, look, everything they do centers around they're devoted to God. Of course they witnessed in word to those who were attracted by the character of their spirit-filled community. It was lifestyle evangelism at its best and most authentic. People witnessed those things they were devoted to And the result was growth. You see, if you follow where we started with this, we began by saying the big issue for many churches in the West is not how to cope with growth, but how to arrest decline. You may have wondered then, well, what's the point in giving a sermon all about priorities for a growing church? But surely the way to arrest decline is to focus on priorities which are not only characteristic of a growing church, but will indeed produce a growing church. So, Let me complete our conclusion. A church whose priorities 
are to be a learning church, a loving church, a worshipping church, is a witnessing church, and will be a growing church. And the Lord, Luke concludes this little section, and the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. The Lord gave them new babies to look after because he could trust them to this new family. You see, if we're not the kind of church described here with those kind of priorities, will God give us babies if we're not going to feed them on God's word? Will God give us new Christians if we're not going to really care for them and do more than just meet with them for a couple of hours on Sunday? Will God give us new Christians if we're not prepared to share our lives in worship with them and with Him? That's the challenge, isn't it? See, our goal in Charlotte Chapel, if you know what our goal is, our our logo is conspicuous for Christ. And just think a little moment, those of you who are members here, how this fits in with this New Testament church. Our mission statement is to impact our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power and message of Christ. Let's keep that in our minds. Because if we are conspicuous for Christ, if we are being changed and transformed as a community, then people will be drawn to us. Let's seek the help of the same Holy Spirit who came upon those Christians in power, that we might be this distinctive community conspicuous for Christ. Final quotation from another commentator, William Larkin. That's what he writes. God's plan is for churches to grow. The challenge for us is, will we meet the scriptural conditions for growth? A dedication to be a learning, caring, fellowshipping, worshipping church. That's the challenge of the book of Acts. The challenge of God's word. Let's ask God to help us to do that and to get on with the job that God has called us to do. Now we're going to respond to that first of all in a song and then different people are going to share different ways in which we can be 